Mark chapter 16, and we'll go ahead and read beginning in verse 1. Uh, I'll ask your forgiveness in advance for my voice. It's once again uh, a little shaky, and so I will try not to uh, uh, sputter out uh, before the end of the sermon, although that may be what you want. I don't know. <clears throat> you may be praying for that before too long. All right, Mark chapter 16, verses 1 and following. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone. For they were afraid. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the truth that Jesus is alive. I pray that you would just focus us for just a few moments this morning on this truth so that we might respond in a way that actually makes sense given the wonderful, glorious reality of the resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever thought about the fact that hundreds of years from now, a future generation may, through archaeology or historical research, uncover some of the ways that we spend our time nowadays and think, man, those people were really strange. It makes me laugh to think about, and yes, I have thought about that, because I am strange. Imagine explaining to a future generation, for example, that thousands and thousands of millennials spend an hour and 40 minutes of their life, time they could never get back, watching a movie called Nacho Libre. And not only that, but that this film became so ingrained into the culture of a generation that you could quote just about any part of it and people would know that you're quoting that movie. It's just wormed its way into our consciousness because as ridiculous as literally every second of that movie is, it somehow manages to connect with real life and everyday situations. Consider, for example, the unforgettable scene in which Nacho expresses concern for his wrestling partner, Escaletto. 
Nacho is a superstitious man. He wants to win the wrestling match. But he feels like Escaletto might be holding them both back because he had never been baptized. So he asked him about it. And do you remember why Escaletto had never been baptized? You all do. Don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about. It's because he only believes in science. Now, why do we find that funny? Why do we find that silly? Because most of us know that baptism isn't designed to help you win wrestling matches. I'm sorry to disappoint. That it's more than just getting your face dunked in a bowl of water when you least suspect it. That the whole idea is just dumb. But it all rests on this trope that I think many people actually agree with, and it's this idea that Christianity on the one hand and science on the other are mutually exclusive, that they do not go along with one another, or that Christianity in all of its various manifestations is backward, irrational, contrary to reason, founded on myths and legends that intelligent people can easily see through. And maybe it helps people feel better about their life, but there are things that are true scientifically, and there are things that are true historically, and the claims of the Bible, they just don't fit into those categories. That's what people think. The Bible, Christianity, is about religious matters. It's about spiritual matters, not matters of fact. Even professing Christians sort of play into this mentality. We speak as though our faith is founded on feeling, rather than on God's mighty acts in time and space. We speak as though, uh, why, why, why do we believe in Christ? Well, well, because he helped me work through my grief, and that may be true. Or because it connects me to my mother and to my grandmother, and that may be true and valuable so far as it goes. We, we all have these sentimental, emotional reasons that we attach to our faith as for whether the Bible actually tells us what happened in history we, we just never think about it. It, does, it doesn't matter to us. And what I want to submit to you this morning is that this division in our mind between that which is historically true, that which is uh, scientifically true or factually true on the one hand, and what is spiritually helpful on the other, when we make a division between these two things, that division is itself contrary to the teachings of the Bible. In fact, one of my favorite reasons that we celebrate Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, every year is because it reminds me that my faith is not based on how I feel, but on an actual historical event that took place in the Middle East in the first century, an event that cannot be denied and cannot be ignored, an event that does not care about your feelings, a fact that demands your attention today. Jesus really rose from the dead. He had died. His heart had stopped. His brain waves stopped functioning. And then early on a Sunday morning, God raised him up again. Not his spirit, not a ghost, a human man alive. Christianity is founded upon the bedrock of an actual historical event. If you pay attention to what the Bible says... It has always, always been this way. 
God's people have never worshipped him merely because they felt like it or because of the spiritual reflections of a great teacher. It's never been like that. It's always been because God showed up in real life, in real time, to display his unmistakable, undeniable authority, power, and character through his mighty acts. Uh, When the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, do you remember this from the book of Exodus? God worked mighty miracles to bring them out. When they were wandering in the wilderness, God worked mighty miracles to feed and to protect them. When they were threatening to abandon the worship of the true God and give themselves to idols, God worked mighty miracles through men like Elijah and Elisha to show that he was in charge. When Jesus came, he worked mighty miracles to show that he was the king. And it's all capped by the mightiest miracle of all, a real moment in which the dead body of Jesus became alive again. Easter reminds us that this happened. And if it happened, you must live with the fact that a man rose from the dead. You must reckon with that. And what I want to do this morning is to invite you to respond to that historical reality rationally, to respond to that reality reasonably, to rationally respond to the resurrection. And this morning, I'd like us to consider three ways that this particular text points us to those types of responses. First of all, this morning, we're going to see the positive reality of the resurrection. Secondly, we'll see a perplexing reaction to the resurrection. And then thirdly, we'll consider a proper response to the resurrection. So consider with me in the first place the positive reality of the resurrection. Notice the stunning claim that this young man makes in verse 7. Or I'm sorry, in verse 6. He has risen. This is the unanimous testimony of the New Testament writers. Jesus rose from the dead. That assertion is so otherworldly that our minds tend to want to explain it away. Like, surely this is not really what the gospel writers want us to believe. They they must mean this as some kind of a metaphor, right? Like some figure of speech. Maybe it's an inspiring legend meant to encourage people to follow the example of a wonderful teacher. Maybe Jesus appeared to a handful of people in their dreams. Maybe they imagined an encounter with a man whose death had caused them profound grief. We all know death is permanent. There is no coming back from it. And yet, if you read carefully the four Gospels and other places in the New Testament that talk about this event, the clear, unanimous testimony is, no, 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 this happened in history. It really happened. He's alive today, physically alive. This morning, I would challenge you to put that claim to the test. Don't you think that that would be worth your time and attention? I mean, you've got one life, and all these different ways that you can spend your time in this one life that you've been given, don't you think a portion of your time on this earth should be spent thinking about the reality that Jesus Christ might have risen from the dead? Because if you do, you'll find there are at least three very powerful historical evidences for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. First of all, consider the empty tomb. The empty tomb. 
Mark tells us that when the, the, the women arrive early on Sunday morning, the stone covering the entrance to the tomb is rolled back, and the body that they had laid in the tomb on Friday afternoon is not there. He's gone. It's empty. The Gospels tell us that a wealthy man named Joseph had requested that Pilate allow him to bury Jesus' body in his own new tomb. Most tombs in the ancient Near East, uh, they had multiple niches and benches. You could bury more than one body in that tomb, but this was a new tomb. There was no one in this tomb. They had laid Jesus' body in this tomb on Friday, but on Sunday, the body was gone. You might object, how do we know that the tomb was empty. Maybe they're just lying about it. Well, in the first place, multiple independent witnesses confirm that this is the case. In fact, even people who had a strong, strong motivation to, to say that the tomb was not empty admitted that the tomb was empty. Uh, the chief priest, for example, had set a guard in front of the tomb to prevent this very thing. So when their soldiers described what happened, the priest paid them to say that the disciples had come to steal the body away. Notice, they didn't pay them to say that Jesus was still in the tomb because the tomb was empty. You say, okay, well, there you go. That's the story. Maybe the disciples came and stole his body away. But why would they do that? Moving a body after burial was unlawful. Besides, the response of the disciples to the arrest, the trial, the death of Jesus Christ shows they were not expecting him to rise from the dead either. In the Gospels, when Jesus shares with his disciples that he was going to rise again, they don't believe him. Every single time, they just kind of hear what he says, and they're puzzled, and they're afraid, and they're astonished, and they kind of go, go on, and they say, okay, well, Jesus, when you come in your kingdom, who's going to be the greatest? Let's talk about what's, what's important to us. They don't expect Jesus to rise from the dead, even though he tells them he's going to. Remember, uh, uh, no one expected the Messiah to die and rise again. In order for that to happen, the disciples would have had to overcome the guards, uh, roll back the stone, steal away with the body, trick everyone who wasn't in on the plot, stay silent about that for decades until they violently died for their testimony to the contrary. In other words, to say that Jesus' followers must have stolen his body is a case of special pleading. It's marshalling evidence that isn't there in order to support a foregone conclusion. You might say, okay, well, maybe it wasn't the disciples. Maybe it was Jesus himself. Maybe the tomb was empty because Jesus wasn't really dead. Maybe he had been hanging on the cross, and he sort of fainted and passed out, and he seemed to be dead. But then as he lay in that cool tomb for multiple days, he quietly revived, and then he stumbled out unnoticed. But this is the most unlikely explanation of all. The Roman soldiers were experts at death. It was their job. They knew that if they didn't do it correctly, they could suffer the same fate as their victims. A military officer swore to Pilate, the governor, Jesus is dead. What's more, do you really think that a victim of crucifixion after a dehumanizing and bloody beating would have had the strength to roll away a stone weighing many hundreds of pounds and then overcoming a, a group of professional soldiers with no evidence of a struggle? No, the reality of the tomb being empty shows us that Jesus is 
alive. Second evidence for the positive reality of the resurrection is, of course, the presence of eyewitnesses. The presence of eyewitnesses. They'll, they'll all bear witness to a single simple truth. Jesus was raised from the dead. The very first witnesses were, of course, these women. Uh, that's not something that you would have made up. If you were making up the story in antiquity, you would not have said that the first witnesses were women because in antiquity, most people didn't trust the testimony of women. And not only that, but consider the number and variety of witnesses to the resurrection. If it had been just one or two people who had a private experience, everyone else could have easily written them off as ecstatic or dreaming or simply overcome with grief. I could see somebody telling me that they saw a loved one while they were alone on their sofa in the living room late at night. I would say, okay. But that's not the kind of testimony that's been handed down. There are individual appearances to be sure. But consider the fact that Jesus appeared at numerous times in numerous places, often to groups of people rather than just individuals. He was seen by two or more people at once on several occasions. That can't happen if it's a dream or a vision. Paul told the Corinthians that there had been more than 500 people who were willing to go on the record and say that they were witnesses to the resurrection. Some of the Corinthians had apparently met a few of these people. Even in the Gospels themselves, in the four Gospels, the Gospel writers are constantly dropping names. Uh, if you read back a few chapters, uh, we're told that Jesus' cross was carried by a man named Simon and that Simon's sons were named Rufus and Alexander. Like, why did he talk about Rufus and Alexander? What did they have to do with the story? Well, the reason he mentions Rufus and Alexander is because Mark's first audience knew those guys. They could go and ask them. They were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Think about what we know about the great events of history. How do we know what happened during the, uh, the, the, the Norman conquest? How do we know what happened at the courthouse in Appomattox? How do we know what happened during the sacking of Rome? And the best type of source is an eyewitness source. I'm no expert in any of these areas, but I imagine none of them have anything even close to the level of attestation that we have for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The amount of eyewitness testimony available to us today is frankly overwhelming. Evidence number one, the empty tomb. Evidence number two, the presence of eyewitnesses. Evidence number three, consider the persistence of the eyewitnesses. The persistence of the eyewitnesses. Many of them continued to bear witness to the resurrection in the face of severe suffering and persecution. From the earliest days of the Christian church, Christian leaders were beaten, imprisoned. James, <clears throat> excuse me, was killed at the hands of Herod Agrippa. After that, one by one, nearly all of the apostles were eventually arrested and killed, and never once did any one of them try to escape their gruesome, violent deaths by renouncing the claims that Jesus had raised from the dead. Doesn't that seem strange to you if they were all just making this story up or if they weren't 100% sure? I mean, all of them, without exception, continue to bear witness to the resurrection until the day they died? You say, well, you know, by that time, maybe they would have been executed either way. Actually, the evidence suggests that that's not the case at all. Uh, there's a series of correspondence still available to us from the beginning of the second century, just a few years after the beginning of the church. 
in which a Roman governor of the region of Bithynia, whose name is Pliny, asks the advice of the Roman emperor. His name was Trajan at the time. Uh, Apparently, Pliny had the experience of a lot of his subjects there in Bithynia professing to be Christians or being accused of being Christians. And so he wrote to the emperor to make sure that he was handling these cases consistently with what the emperor thought. This is what he says. He says, this is the course I have taken with those who were accused before me as Christians. I asked them whether they were Christians. And if they confessed, I asked them a second and third time with threats of punishment. If they kept to it, I ordered them for execution. For I held no question that whatever it was they had admitted, in any case, obstinacy and unbending perversity deserve to be punished. He goes on to say that anyone who renounced Christ would be set free. And when Trajan, the emperor, replies, he says, Pliny, you're doing exactly right. That's how we do it everywhere in the Roman Empire. In other words, it would have been so easy for the eyewitnesses to escape execution and torture and suffering if they would have just admitted, oh, okay, we, we made it all up. But they never did. The reason why is because Jesus really is alive. See, it's readily available, all this evidence in books and even on the internet. We're, we're just scratching the surface. A, a blogger named Justin Taylor, I read just this past week, uh, offered a succinct summary of many, many evidences. You can research it for yourself. But the conclusion is unavoidable. Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. It's not a myth. It's not a legend. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a children's story. It's not something that becomes true if you believe it really strongly in your heart. It's an historical truth, one of the most well-attested in the history of the world. It happened. So listen, friends, whether, no matter who you are, whether you're an atheist or a, a Buddhist or a Muslim or an agnostic or a guy who just doesn't like to get involved in religion or whatever you are, think about this. You live in a world in which a real human man really rose from the dead and is still alive today. You must reckon with that. Have you responded rationally to that? Like reasonably to that fact? If it just doesn't matter to you, that's not rational. That's not a rational response. This is a big deal. You cannot know that that's true and then just go about your day and say, well, isn't that nice? A man rose from the dead. Okay, what's for lunch? That's not rational. Don't you think that this merits your attention? That you should look up from your phone, power down the television, pull the car over, push pause on the playlist, and think about that for a moment. A man rose from the dead. What difference does that make in my life? That's a positive reality, but how did Jesus' followers initially react? Mark tells us here in this passage, and it's a little surprising, a little unfitting. Uh, Consider not only the positive reality of the resurrection, but secondly, a uh, perplexing reaction to the resurrection. The angel tells these women what to do. He says in verse 7, go tell his disciples and Peter, that he's going before you to Galilee. He's going to meet you there just like he said he was going to to do. That's what the angel tells them to do, but initially that's not what they do. 
Eventually they do that, but initially that's not their response. Uh, Mark wants to make a point. It's a very important point in verse 8. What was their initial reaction? And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Does that reaction seem odd to you? It's supposed to be jarring. It's supposed to, it's supposed to be odd. Jesus, the Lord they love, the one that they've worshipped and served, is alive. They should be shouting from the rooftops, but they're afraid. And it's not the good type of fear. It's not like, hey, the fear of the Lord. No, they're afraid of what people are going to do. Again, you're familiar with these resurrection accounts in each of the four Gospels. They all show this event from a different angle. But let's pay attention to what Mark is trying to say here in this passage. He's trying to make a specific point because even though it's jarring to us that these ladies would react this way initially, it's actually in keeping with the way that people have responded to Jesus throughout the entire Gospel of Mark. In chapter 4, Jesus and the disciples are sailing across the Sea of Galilee. Mark tells us that this huge storm arrives. And the disciples are fearing for their lives. They've never seen anything like it. And they wake Jesus up, and Jesus stands up, and he says, peace, be still. And the storm just dissipates, and the the sea is calm. And what's the disciples' response there in chapter 4? Mark tells us, they aren't elated. They aren't excited. They aren't grateful. They're afraid. Then in the next chapter, Jesus casts out a huge army of demons from a man. And he sends them into a herd of pigs. The the, the pigs drown in the sea like the armies of Pharaoh. Like this is the new Moses that's here. This is exciting, right? This man had been a menace to society, and now he's sitting there in his right mind. People should be happy. But, But Mark tells us they're afraid. And they said to Jesus, can you leave? You need to get out of here. The next chapter, chapter 6. Many who heard him were astonished, and they took offense at him. Later in the chapter, they saw him and were terrified. Chapter 9, verse 32, they did not understand his saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Chapter 10, verse 26, they were exceedingly astonished. Chapter 10, verse 32, those who followed him were afraid. Chapter 11, verse 18, the crowd was astonished. And you get to the final moments of Jesus' life. He's arrested, he's tried, he's killed. And where are Jesus' followers in that moment? They're gone. Why? Because they were afraid to stand with their Lord. We're even told in Mark chapter 14, verses 51 and 52, that there was a young man present. Many people think that Mark himself is talking about his, him, his own experience. He was so afraid that when he left the Garden of Gethsemane, he left his cloak there and he ran away naked. Why does Mark emphasize this fear? Why does he show the followers of Christ as cowardly wimps who are just afraid of everything? Here's why. Because his own community, to which he was writing all these decades later, were also overcome with fear. They were following Christ. They had believed in Jesus. They had had given their all to him. They had said, I'm going to be baptized and publicly show that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And then what happened? Persecution, loneliness, economic loss, rejection from their family. You see, in antiquity, in the ancient world, 
especially in, in the place where Mark must have been living, the city of Rome, there was no privacy at all. Everybody knew everyone else's business. So these people who, were, who had said, I'm following Jesus Christ, all of their neighbors, all of the people that they worked with, they all knew about it. And they were suffering for the name. The temptation was constant and the pressure was strong to flee in fear and say nothing to anyone, just like these women at the empty tomb. It's like Mark was sort of inviting his first readers into the story themselves and asking, are you really going to respond to the victory of Jesus Christ over death by running away in fear? Doesn't that seem silly to you? Your king just beat death. Death is the final boss in the last level of the game. Death is the ultimate enemy. Nobody's stronger than death. Nobody escapes death. We're all going to die and then that's it. But then your king, the guy that you said you wanted to follow, he died and then he killed death. Does it really make sense for you to live in fear now? When your king already defeated the greatest enemy that you face, it makes no sense at all. Didn't make sense for Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome. Their king had just beat death. It didn't make sense for Mark's audience. Their king had beat death. The persecution they were facing, the worst that could happen was they could be killed. But even that had been defeated. Folks, it's not, it wasn't rational for them. It's not rational for us to respond to the reality of the life of Jesus Christ by walking around in fear and misery all the time as though Jesus were not alive. Is it possible you're responding to this reality in a way that's frankly irrational? You're afraid. You say, Jake, if I do what Christ is asking me to do, my, my spouse is going to be upset. Okay. That's what you're afraid of? Your king just beat death. If I open my mouth and talk about Jesus, then people might get annoyed. You're afraid of that? Your king just beat death. If I give generously to the missionaries or to my church or to a brother or sister in need, I might not be ready for retirement when I originally planned. That's what you're afraid of? Not retiring on time? That doesn't make sense. Your king just beat death. Are you responding in a way that fits with the reality that we celebrate every single Sunday? Most people are constrained by the reality of death, but our Lord and King Jesus of Nazareth defeated death, and so you do not need to adjust to it anymore. You can live as though death is not the end, because it's not. If you don't have to worry about death, then what are you doing worrying about all the other lesser stuff? Death has been defeated. Is your trial harder or easier to overcome than death? Is your relational problem harder or easier to overcome than death? You understand what I'm saying. The women's initial reaction was perplexing. It wasn't rational. It didn't make sense. And so Mark sort of invites us into the story ourselves and implicitly asks, well, what do you think would be a fitting response to the fact that Jesus is alive? So consider with me not only the positive reality of the resurrection and a 
perplexing reaction to the resurrection. But thirdly, a proper response to the resurrection. Now, if you were to set aside your phone and your responsibilities and your entertainment for a couple of days, and you were to go open your Bible, be alone with God, and really meditate on the fact that Jesus is alive, I'm sure that you would answer the question, how should I respond properly to the facts that Jesus beat death in sort of the same way that thousands of Christians have reached, uh, the same conclusions that thousands of Christians have reached down through the ages. This is not complicated. There's nothing obscure or complicated about this. If Jesus beat death, then it should make a difference in my life, but what difference should it make? What is the proper response to the resurrection? Let me just leave you with a series of rational responses to the resurrection. First of all, if Jesus really beat death, then you should trust him. If Jesus really beat death, then you should trust him. Simple, not complicated. You should trust him. Think about it. A man spent most of his adult life building chairs and framing doors, and then he walks out into public life, and he begins to claim an authority that nobody else has until one day he rides into Jerusalem riding on a donkey and claims, I am the king. Why would you trust someone like that? If anyone that you know tells you that they're the king, and that you need to bow down to them and worship and serve them, you should probably say no, right? Unless they beat death. <laughs> if they beat death, then it's all different, right? Like you can trust Jesus because he came back from the dead. He must be telling the truth. You say, well, I'm not sure who's right. How do I know what religion is the right one? Let me just suggest a method for who is determining who is right if, if the person that you're looking at rose from the dead, then you can trust what they have to say. Well, this YouTuber has some good things to say. Question, has he ever defeated death? No? Okay, well, then his, his, his opinion is of limited value. My professor in school is just really smart. Question, has she ever defeated death? No? Okay, well, then what she has to say is of limited value. I didn't say of no value. I'm just saying it's of limited value by comparison to the one who defeated death. There's only one. Friend, if you're not a Christian this morning, if you're not really a Christian in your heart, if you don't have a personal, real relationship with Jesus of Nazareth, then what I'm asking you to do is trust him today. To say, I'm done trusting my own way. By the way, have you ever defeated death? I haven't. So trusting myself, that's a bad idea. But to say, I'm done trusting my own way. I'm done listening to everybody else. I'm going to trust Jesus. He's the only king worthy of my ultimate trust because he's the only one who defeated death. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you should trust him. If Jesus rose from the dead, you should obey him. If he tells you to do something, don't act like you know better. Just do what he says to do because he knows how to defeat death. If Jesus rose from the dead and you're a follower of Christ, this is a rational response. You should never, ever, ever give up. You should never give up. 
said, I don't see a way out of this situation. I don't know if I can take it. Never give up. The person you're trusting has been to hell and back. He's dealt with far worse situations than what you're dealing with now. I know that there's stuff out there. I'm sure this, this crowd of people, there's stuff that is just stomach-turning that you're facing right now. But I'm telling you, Jesus has dealt with it. He's faced it, and he's defeated death. You say, I don't, I don't know what to do. Okay, but just don't give up. Jesus was abandoned by everybody. He was killed, but he's alive forevermore. This is what the letter to the Hebrews is all about. You serve a living Savior who prays for you constantly and will one day return. Do you remember that passage that Rhonda read a few minutes ago in the earlier part of the service? Uh, you, you make known to me the path of life. Who's talking that? Who's saying that? It's Jesus. He's saying, Father, you, I just, I love you so much. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. This is our Savior. He knows the Father, and he prays for us. The one who rose from the dead is praying for you now, so don't throw in the towel. If Jesus really defeated death, then you don't have any reason to be afraid. Now, sure, we worship him with reverence and all. There's a certain kind of fear that's healthy. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying you don't have to worry. Listen, this is serious. You do not have to be afraid that your king is going to somehow change his mind, that he's going to change his character. He's always going to be the same. This is the king that defeated death. You don't have to worry about what all these other people are doing and saying because you serve a king who defeated the last boss. So this fear that we have, I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I can serve Christ. I'm a little bit afraid of what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen with my job. I don't know what's going to happen with my family. Don't be afraid. You spend so much of your energy afraid, afraid of running out of money, afraid of being rejected, afraid of being overlooked, afraid that you're never going to make it in God's eyes, that you're never going to be accepted. And I'm telling you, you don't have to be afraid. Not because you're great, because he is the one that defeated death. Let that sink in. We can follow Christ fearlessly because he defeated death. You know, we could go on and on and on. We could talk about all sorts of entailments of this reality. What difference should it make that Jesus rose from the dead? And we could say probably dozens of things. But folks, here's the point. Are you going to respond in a way that is rational, that makes sense, that is a reasonable response to the fact that Jesus is alive? That's what we're here to do today. Are we going to respond to Christ rationally? Are we going to allow the resurrection to make a difference in our lives? Would you pray with me now?